This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. Coded language is a tool or weapon. I should not a tool. It's a weapon mm-hmm. that um, honestly, like the the liberal, like the left falls into often. Um, thinking that they're doing the right thing, but in all actuality are perpetuating negative stereotypes. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. One, two, two. interchangeable. White ladies! Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Megan. Today's essential question, how can facing our racialized biases help fight against the stronghold of white supremacy in our personal and work life? So listeners, you might be thinking, don't y'all talk about this all the time? (laughs) Every single episode. And part of the context for today's conversation actually um, is a little bit of a longer story. So Megan is bearing with me in in terms of hearing the story a couple of times. But um, some of y'all might remember when I had on or when we had on the podcast, Emily Meadows and Tamara Friedman as part of the Whiteness Accountability Group for International Educators back in June, we had them on the show. Well, the last couple months I've been participating with this group meeting monthly to have lots of good conversations in that affinity group space, right? So white people being able to open up, talk to other white people about the things we're struggling with when it comes to like racial issues um, and and fighting white supremacy in that safe space. And then, you know, we can wrestle through uh, without putting the burden on people of color in a different kind of way, right? So both and kind of approach to fighting white supremacy. Anyway, I was asked to facilitate the workshop here in October. And as I was preparing for it, I was really struck with like, what do I talk about? There's so much stuff for for white educators to talk about that we need to to like address. Like where to begin. And so, of course, I reached out to a couple of teachers of color um, and I said, hey, what do white educators need to talk about more? And from that conversation that I had with them, um, what surfaced is really thinking about our implicit biases and the way that we use coded language in schools. And so I ended up calling this workshop this week, Facing Our Racialized Biases and Coded Language. And I, um, someone asked me, well, why didn't you just say racial biases? And I started, you know, the English teacher in me. So I was like, well, racialized, a little bit different. So I started to think about, at least this is where I'm coming from. I started to think about this idea that we have all these, we have biases, as we know, like biases can be good or bad or whatever they are, what they are. But it's the implicit biases that often lead to problematic behavior. And as a result, ends up in things like prejudice and bigotry and so mm. on, as we've talked about mm-hmm. before anti-blackness, whatever it may be. And so I was thinking about that, like, what are those biases that we have, but then they're racialized. And so in the sense that like, because of intersectionality, we can't really get away from the fact that race plays a role, even though we know it's a social construct, we cannot really get away from the idea that it plays a role in the way that we perceive things. Mm -hmm. Again, even if we try to pretend like it doesn't, it really, really does. Mm -hmm. And I think 
specifically for white people or or professions that are dominated by white folks or white culture or white mentality. Um, because of that, I think there's a colorblindness that happens, right? They've been able to opt out from thinking about race or how race impacts a given situation or a given encounter or a given uh, communication situation. And so I really wanted to talk to you about it as well, because, mm-hmm. you know, as I'm talking with this group, lots of great conversation came out of it. And it's really interesting because we're together, like, even though I'm facilitating, we're learning, I'm learning alongside other educators and other people. And so I wanted to talk to you because Megan, you know, we have all kinds of conversations um, about this kind of stuff. Endless conversations. But I was curious because in your case, as you've talked about, you know, being white passing, but also like, what does that mean in your own context and thinking about, you know, hopefully in, in this episode, as we unpack this a little bit more, we'll also be able to talk about what do we do then about this? And I don't think it's just yeah. unique to education either. So I'm curious as my Absolutely. spiel kind of was going on there, kind of where are you at when you think about these issues of racialized bias and coded language? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, um, it's interesting because I, I deeply believe that words matter and, and where the words come from matters. And understanding how the systems in which we have existed, I, I, you know, on this podcast, I talk so much about systems theory. I feel like I'm just a broken record at this point talking about systems theory. Um, I feel like we need a record scratcher. Like that was the worst record scratches that a human being has ever made. Both of us can edit that out. Yeah, like that was extra. Just my gosh, hope that was bad. But I think that I, I, the reason why systems theory resonates with me so much, the reason why I really love to dig into that is because the systems in which we exist in have, whether we are aware of it or not, whether we wanted them to or not, have impacted the way that we see the world, the frames in which we see the world and exist in the world. And you have no chance of changing those systems unless you can acknowledge your place in them. And unless you can acknowledge their impact on you and the way that you walk through the world. And, and this is, this is it, right? So Mm -hmm. acknowledging how the different systems that we exist in and, and like just naming it, the white supremacist systems that we have existed in have impacted our language, have mm-hmm. impacted the way that we see and talk about things. And this is not a conservative versus liberal right, issue, right. right? This is yeah. not a woke versus unwoke issue. Mm-hmm. It, this is something that it has impacted every single person. Mm-hmm. that is living today, mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. existing, that has existed before us, that have created every, all the educational system that you mm-hmm. and I work in, that have created all of our governmental systems. Like yep. it impacts everything. It's built into everything. So I think, I think about it in the big picture often. Um, I'm excited for the opportunity today to talk with you about a more macro look Mm -hmm. at it, right? Like Mm -hmm. the tangibles, what does it look like in my life, right? What Mm -hmm. does it look like in your life? What does it look like in our day-to-day? And then what are some things that we can do to interrupt that, to disrupt those moments that we see it, interact with it, smacks Mm -hmm. us across the face, Mm -hmm. touches our shoulder. (laughs) Maybe Mm -hmm. it's not as aggressive as a smack Mm -hmm. across the face. Um, 
And all of those things are are significant and important for us to disrupt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I, I'm listening to you talk, it, it makes me think a lot about starting with the idea of positionality. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel mm-hmm. like it, when we talk about language, you know, we always throw these words around or whatever, but mm-hmm. like in your mind, when you think about positionality, what do you think of? What does that mean for you? Ooh, that's a really good question, Hope. <laughs> like hitting me right off the top. <laughs> um, I think of privilege and power. Mm-hmm. That's what I think of. And I'm not sure if that's like an accurate or correct way of thinking about it. But when I hear positionality, um, I think of who has power and who doesn't. I think of who mm-hmm. has privilege and who doesn't and why. Um, I think of who and like the word cast just like popped into my head when we read that book of like, who's the dominant cast, who's not the dominant cast. Um, And so the positionality of the person and, and honestly your positionality, my positionality changes based on the situation that I'm in. Right. And you kind of talked about my racial ambiguity. I, and as the woman who is, Mm -hmm white passing, but racially ambiguous. I have walked that path. I have felt that shift where my positionality in certain situations have absolutely shifted both in personal moments in my life, as well as professional moments in Mm -hmm. my life. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I think of that. And then I think of the impact of groups of people, right? The positionality of groups or demographics of people and how that changes, um, power, dominance, privilege. Mm-hmm. What do you think of when you think of position, positionality, Hope? Yeah, I'm totally nodding and amening you over here in Abu Dhabi. Um, but I'm also very <laughs> visual. So I kind of picture like a person standing in the middle of a circle and like the circle is, you know, whatever world I'm existing in. So if my professional world, my personal world, whatever it may be, um, that space at the grocery store, wherever, right? And I picture someone at the center of that circle. And depending on where you're standing in that circle in relation to the things around you, um, to your point, power and privilege and how you see things are based on that position that you're standing in. Mm-hmm. And so- you know, like literally speaking, right. If I am, I live on the 39th floor. So when I'm on the 39th floor, how I see the city or how I, Mm -hmm. what I notice when I look out on my balcony is different than when I'm like visiting a friend on the 23rd floor or I'm on the ground Mm -hmm. floor or whatever. Right. And so I think about positionality in that way. And sometimes because of our positionality, we see things more clearly in a given time. And we Mm -hmm. recognize when we're we're talking about like justice issues or matters of justice, we can see something more explicitly or clearly because of our line of sight from that particular position in that given moment. While other things, I think, because to your point, they're shifting. Um, I don't think we can always see them, right? And sometimes we miss them or they're in our, we've talked about it being like, you know, on our peripheral vision, we can't see it in that particular moment because of that position. But one of the things, um, yeah, I, I just was thinking a lot about this. There's a definition I actually really love um, mm-hmm. from transformative, transformative alliances. Um, and they say positionality is the relationship, your relationship to institutions, um, either in a position, in a particular societal position in that group, or in a group when it comes to a dominant group or a non-dominant group. Um, they also talk about this idea that your positionality functions obviously differently depending on where you live. And so some of those things we think about, your position in, in a given space, you brought up race, you brought up about gender. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you actually bring up gender identification, right? Exactly. Yeah. 
you think about these different layers, right? You brought up caste. What is that? How does that play a role? If people are still Absolutely. using the word social class, how does that play a role? Um, our sexual orientation, I think our abilities, our physicality, like our ability to move or not move, mobility, mm-hmm. um, our age band, right? How all of those things impact um, and give us a particular relationship to these systems of power in a given time. Yeah. And I think um, what you said about the, you're on the 36th floor. I think something that- I'm 39. I'm going to be- Oh my God. Oh my God. I, you got the, you, 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 you're coming down floor. three floors. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. What happens the moment that perceived power is taken from you. Interesting. I know. I'm interesting. Like that threatened. Oh my gosh. Um, so I just want to uh, make- a correction on the record. She lives on the 39th floor, everybody. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> this makes me think of um, th- these conversations about um, just all of this, right, are really challenging. It's really hard for people. People are at different places in their learning and mm-hmm. growth. And um I mean, speaking of broken records, I'm going to go back to, it made me think of the analogy that, that we were taught in my undergraduate program when learning about change theory, which I mentioned Mm -hmm. in our last episode. And it was, you know, when somebody's first starting, they're at the base of a mountain, Mm -hmm, right. mm -hmm. And they're looking at this, um, looking out from the mountain and their view is very detailed. It's very limited, but it's very detailed, right? You can see Mm -hmm. what is in front Mm -hmm. of you. Mm -hmm. And the more you climb up the mountain, the more you see, and the more your perspective grows, the more, um, the bigger picture, right? The context in which the base of the mountain was, is bigger. You have a Mm -hmm. deeper understanding of the view that you had when you first started. Um, but the view that you had when you first started was the same. And so like you had the higher you grow or the higher you climb in the journey, every single view that you had is still a very true and real view and was necessary in order to have the view from the top, right? But it changes the way that you see what you were seeing on your way up, right? The perspective, Mm -hmm. the context shifts, the frame shifts. And it makes me think of how we have conversations with people that are maybe not as high up on the mountain mm-hmm. as you. Mm-hmm. And um, just as we move into this conversation and we talk about what can you do to disrupt moments that you see is that oftentimes people are not aware that they're not as high up on the mountain as you. Oftentimes people are not aware that their perspective and the view that they are seeing is not complete is mm-hmm. not whole. And you, because you're higher, do are aware that their view is not complete yet. Their view is not as broad and big and like, like complete. But the way that I think we oftentimes have conversations with people that are not as high up in their journey or not as far in their journey is very othering. It's very isolating. It's very, do you know what I'm saying? It's very, yeah blaming rather than and like invalidating rather than any maybe that's a whole other conversation but I just I feel when you were saying that I thought of that is like your positionality and where you're at oftentimes gives you um fair or unfair the burden of inviting in and Mm -hmm. how do you do that right Mm -hmm. so like with power and privilege sometimes comes needing to um 
I, I'm, do you know what I'm, I'm, I'm like trying to figure well, there's out. A resp- the there's like a bit of a responsibility. Yeah. But one of the things I want to say, kind of poking a hole, and maybe, I don't know, you're maybe you're getting at this too, is also, I think sometimes when folks have been on the journey for a long time, we forget <laughs> to your point, like going up the mountain, yes. you're like, I'm seeing this big view and you forget the reality of like daily life. Right. And so I think sometimes, and maybe I'm just taking your metaphor a different direction, but, yes. <laughs> but I think sometimes <laughs> that's there's, all right. <laughs> there's also this piece about like grounding that needs to happen. Right. And I think that's kind of the issue when it comes to these topics is I think folks don't even realize like one, that they have positionality, that they're in a particular yeah. space in a given moment. And so your identity and your power and your privilege in that particular social constructed space changes or like there is first it's there first of all it's there second of all it changes and then three like how do we deal with those shifting changes and then what does that mean for the role of like intersectionality right so like Mm -hmm. I will always be a a white woman so with that said um no Rachel (laughs) don't us all over here (laughs) with that said (laughs) remember her you're not you're not trying to yeah yeah with that said like my power So even if I'm having gendered experiences, which are like, you know, lower in terms of status and like, and certain elements of power and privilege in a given case, however, I'm still white. And so does whiteness trump uh, my, Mm. you know, my gender Mm -hmm. identity in that particular moment, the way that I present in that moment. And sometimes they're comparable in the, it's like they're wrestling on equal terms sort of, but oftentimes that whiteness trumps the other thing. And then add to it now in an international context, you know, we have American passports. And so passport privilege and nationality privilege is a real thing, which I think a lot of folks who don't necessarily go other places or encounter folks with different passports don't always realize it. And maybe in the States, I think we maybe talk about it more in terms of documentation, right? Is there documentation privilege that happens when you're documented versus when you're undocumented? And where are you from? Right. And then you add in things like your linguistic, like your language. So the hierarchy that happens if you speak with a West Coast English accent, right, you blend in, you assimilate. There's a power dynamic that comes to play if you're somebody who speaks with an accent. And then where is that accent from? Right. And the Eurocentric implications of like Eurocentricism in the U.S. Right. Where we're like, ooh, that French accent, super cute. But like folks talk a lot of crap about people with like a Central American Spanish influenced accent. Right. Um, Or Eastern European is different than Western European and just these different things that happen. And so when you're in those positions, um, I, I guess it's just thinking about all the roles of, yeah, all those different factors that are influencing how you're interacting in a given space. Mm-hmm. And, and being aware of your own intersectionality, right. And which has, what carries more weight, right. What carries more, um, power and privilege in those different spaces. I think about that often, yeah. often, um, so like, I, I think let's make it like real for our own personal lives. Like, I don't think in the U S as like a, a white female language arts teacher, like there's a million of us, dime a dozen, my friends. Like that's not, there's not a lot of things that that's where IWL even came from. In the I was about place. to say, you know, like, like, I was that's literally about to be like name the after. name of the podcast. Uh, yeah. So I think about that and like, I didn't feel especially like powered or privileged. However, as I was teaching, you know, I started to realize, you know, the role of white women in teaching spaces and especially teaching students of color, like the shifting power dynamic. Mm-hmm. And then you start looking at historically what have white women been real crappy about in accusing, you know, kids of color, boys of color, you know, just like all those dynamics, right? Absolutely. So those, all those factors kind of play a role. I think here, because I teach English, um, I'm considered part of the language department, except I'm not because there's also still this divide. So it's, we're all world languages, but then there's still this hierarchy that happens where folks in English are still like, well, we teach 
English, English language. And that's like, you know, that's a language yeah. of power in this particular space and colonization and so on and so on. Yeah. Um, or this, this form of colonization, right? Of course, French and Spanish have their own place for that. But it was something that I was like, oh, I was super excited to see like the, that it was different and that, but then at the same time, I'm like, oh, okay, there's, there seems to be, uh, you know, in my small time here, there seems to be a little bit of a hierarchy um, that's just implied, right? It's, it's things underneath the ground. Yeah. No one's saying it. No one's doing anything necessarily within that. Totally. Frame. Absolutely. Beneath but I was curious, I mean, you're a woman in the social studies. Yeah. Um, I think my experience in a social studies department is different than many other schools. Um, we actually, we have a long-term sub right now who is the only coach in our social studies department, um, which I don't know if listeners remember their social studies teachers, but oftentimes that is the department where coaches go. Yeah. Um, that coach life. You just that sign coach a chapter life. to read. You go like leave early. You go play baseball or <laughs> baseball, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I think that I've had a very unique experience in a social studies department because um, that's not the case at the school that I teach at, at Lincoln High School. Um it is, it's really like, yeah, like I, I think that, and I also though think that, um, there's <clears throat> the dynamic of as a school, as a whole, I oftentimes think about the small numbers of male teachers in the teaching profession, but then yep. looking at the positions of power that male teachers oh, are given, yep. Yep. um, and this is not a personal attack on any person, one person, right. Or any people, because I think like on a macro level, people are doing good work. I just think that it's really interesting. The number of, um, men that are given positions of power in schools versus yep. the number of women that are actually teachers. And mm -hmm. so I think of who's leaving PDs. I think mm -hmm. of who are department chairs. I think of who are admin. And there is absolutely a dynamic of, <sighs> there is a gender dynamic within the educational world that has existed in every school that I've been in. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> and it, well, there's it, also the racial dynamic. You're not even stating it, but oh, white it's, men, it's, yeah, there oh, you go. white, like right, <laughs> like white men, and yeah. who's taking up a lot of space in conversations, and who is being, and I, and I think that oftentimes it is women in schools that are asking, like they, like the implicitness of it, implicitness of it right? Mm -hmm. The positionality of it is that, okay, so we are conditioned in the systems that we have existed in is to see men mm -hmm. and think of leadership, to mm -hmm. think of power, yeah, of to think of intelligence, mm -hmm. um, capability, Mm -hmm. All of those things are mm -hmm. part of it. And that is something that is it, like ingrained in everybody in our, in the societies that we exist in. And um, so that means that subconsciously people tend to look to men to take on, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, to take on positions of leadership. And then when we think about whiteness and what we are implicitly taught about whiteness is that um, intelligence, ability, power, 
mm-hmm. leadership. And so mm-hmm. white men are oftentimes looked to to take on positions of power, to be the experts in certain areas, despite the fact that they may not be the experts in that area. Um, but aren't, aren't they though? Like, it's just innate in them, right? It's just innate. They're born with it. They're just born with expertise in everything. It's not Maybelline, you know, they were born with it. (laughs) (laughs) They were absolutely born with the abilities and powers. And, and it's something that I will be very personally over the last probably two years has begun to really bother me. (laughs) really bothered me in the, and, and not like, I, I truly, I say that, like, I've always been aware of it, right? Like I've always worked in these very, like in the, like just saying that in the nonprofit world, like it felt like 90% of the workforce were women caretakers take care of them mm-hmm. solve the yeah, solve the world's hardest problems right women are the ones that walk into these spaces and try and solve the world's hardest social problems um homelessness um poverty <clears throat> like opportunity gaps for children all of that but when you look at who the ceos are of nonprofits they're men yeah right well, and then it, in school well, describing- it's the same it's the same internationally. Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't think I even thought about, like, I, I think maybe I secretly thought it would be different. But then looking at the data that actually a lot of the data has just in the last few years has been collected because it's something that's not really, you know, like, it's not really shunned upon. Um, yes. It mirrors. It's, it mirrors exactly that. It mirrors what's happening it's, there. Right. And so it's this, it's, yeah, it's, but honestly, I think in the last couple of years in working in schools and working in the these spaces it um it has been because I used to be able to just like I don't know brush it off um it has begun to really frustrate me in a way that in on a day-to-day level right like Mm. it's no longer for me this like big picture frustration systems oh I'm seeing it and it's like oh like fight the system no it is like in day-to-day like frustrations that I am seeing and feeling and um and then even that the privilege of I can say the words it's only in the last couple of years right yeah right like and I recognize the privilege the immense privilege that I have walked through life in that like it's only been in the last couple of years that my day-to-day frustration and annoyance I haven't been able to curb it like I used to be able to like honestly I just want to tell myself to shut up right now because it's like (laughs) me like that I even am saying this on the podcast because I recognize that my whiteness has protected me Mm. from feeling that frustration day to day Mm. my entire life right like there has been an immense privilege in not having to see or feel that kind of oppression or Mm. imbalance or you know what I mean? Like what mm-hmm. a privilege it was for me to walk through nearly 30 years, 29, 30 years of my life of like having this like shield of not having to deal with the annoyance mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis of mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. 
Well, and hearing you, you know, I appreciate you acknowledging that, right? Not for me, for our conversation for listeners as well. It makes me also think about, you know, one of the things I want to wanted to talk to you about is are there times where you can think about, or maybe it's really in the last couple of years, how do you think you have leveraged your positionality? So recognizing where you're at in a given moment, but then leveraged it for the benefit of students of color or colleagues of color or trying to disrupt. So I'm curious if there's anything mm. that you're kind of thinking of where you think you were able to leverage that in like a more meaningful way with, with a good outcome, not just for yourself. Mm-hmm. I delightful and wonderful question. And um, partly because I want some time to think on it and also partly because we yeah. really have to take a break. How about we take a break and then when we come back, I'll try and tackle that like challenging but very, very important question. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Channel 253 show Nerd Farmer. And this episode is sponsored by Pacific Lutheran University. If we've learned anything from the last two years, it's that the future is unpredictable, which is why education and higher education in particular should equip students with the ability to be flexible and innovate. Students should leave college with the determination needed to understand a problem and explore solutions. And they need a spark of creativity so they can find new ways to turn their smart ideas into reality. But these traits and skills can only be set into motion by one thing, transformative care. Pacific Lutheran University is a small private college where caring means more than kindness and consideration. It means bold commitment to expanding well-being, opportunities, and justice. And just let me add an amen to that. Caring helps us all to question paradigms and draw new connections in pursuit of truth, constantly challenging ourselves and the world we love to be better for our neighbors, those down the street and thousands of miles away. PLU is more than a campus full of individuals pursuing their dreams. It's a community of seekers, trailblazers, creators, and reformers who know we can accomplish more together than apart. To apply, schedule a campus visit, or learn more about PLU's undergrad and graduate programs, please visit plu.edu. All right, Megan, I don't know if that was enough time for you to think. So I'm going to share um, a recent example, actually, that happened for me and not to do any kind of horn tooting here, but just simply <laughs> thinking about like, toot, I, toot, feel like help, toot, I feel like toot. these are <laughs> these are things that you like sometimes we make too much of a big deal out of like interruption. And I think it's actually simpler than that. Mm. Um, and so I don't remember. I don't think I talked about this on the last episode. So if I did, forgive me, um, because it all just happened in the last couple of weeks. But um, we had an opportunity to send a handful of educators to a training around DEIJ work, an international training and kind of send represents from our school. And so our school is a K-12, as you know, and we have leaders who are going to attend. And, and the, the, I'm going to pause you for one was, second. We're going to unpack that acronym. If we could, like, I would have the jargon. inclusion and justice. There you go. There you go. Okay. Yeah. And so we were going to do this training and uh, an email was sent out to comprise the team. And so um, I had definitely expressed interest before, and I've been doing, some of you have heard me talk about doing this student teacher group. Um, So I'm already involved in some work around that. So of course, when I saw the email going out, I was really interested in attending. Um, And then I was asked, uh, you know, to like, hey, is your name coming in here? And I said, yeah, I would really love to be part of this. But in that moment, I just had this kind of like, this kind of moment check with myself that I was like, I don't know who all the people are going on this team. There's 15 people. 
And I think it's really important for white folks and people of color to do this work alongside each other. And mm. just like it wouldn't matter if I was at this school or any other school, it's the same thing back if I was still in the States. Um, I had this moment where I was like, I have an opportunity to use my position, like literally this spot I have mm. taken up on this team to have somebody who should be in here instead of me. And in that moment, I was like, okay, I can have a very candid, I can ignore this or I could do something about it. So I just replied back and I said, I would really love this spot, but I also think it's super important to have a really balanced team that represents, you know, the middle school, the elementary and the high school. I think it's really important that we make sure that we do this in partner with um, our educators of color. And I don't, I don't know, I, I said, I, I did assume best intent, you know, so I, I said, certainly said like, I, you probably already thought of this and I don't know if they already did or not, but I, again, I, I'm, you know, I'm sure you already thought of this. Mm-hmm. And so I just re- replied back with, you know, just a very candid, like, I would love to see on our team, you know, representation from our Black educators, representation from our South Indian educators, representation from our um, Arab population and Arab educators at the school, you know, and so I I just kind of went through all of that. Um, And in the end, I was on the team, but I was really excited to see that representation on our committee, on the final results of the the committee. But I had to, in that moment, decide, like, I could have just ignored it, but I also had the opportunity to say, like, yeah, you, I don't need to be there. I don't need to be part of this thing. I will continue to do the work. I'll continue to ask questions and like talk to the people on that committee and so on. Right. But yeah, I think absolutely. sometimes it's these little moments where we can actually do something that we maybe don't think about doing. Um, mm-hmm. I had a student in the last week who was running for a local office and he, he was listening to a number of the girls complaining how there wasn't enough women running and how all the boys always run positions for office. And mm-hmm. he's like, he is one of these kids who is coming to, you know, he's further along in his journey, I think, than a lot of adults are. And he's like, should I, what should I do about it? I hear what you guys are saying. And I don't want to be this person just filling another spot. And all the girls in that moment were like, it's fine. It's fine. Whatever. You're a good candidate. Da, 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 da. Mm. But I just loved the fact that he was stopping and really considering not running. Right. And so mm-hmm. he, you know, he, he felt like... I guess in that moment, it was what's best for him is to continue to run. But it's it's those kinds of things, right? Like, what if he had stopped running? What if he had, you know, encourage, I don't know if he goes, he went out and encouraged people to vote for the women that were also running too for these positions. Yeah. I'm not sure, but how do we leverage? To me, this is all part of that, like, positionality component and leveraging it in order to to disrupt what is happening around us. Absolutely. I, and I think about, oh, that last example of... Um, when checking your own positionality and privilege and power, even if the echo chamber that is surrounding you is reinforcing, um, (laughs) your position and reinforcing your power and privilege does not mean that it's right. And Mm -hmm. so you have a responsibility within yourself to ask, how am I? decentering myself mm-hmm. in these spaces <clears throat> and how am I decentering my uh myself in that that privilege and power am I how am I inviting in where is my responsibility um as somebody with power and privilege in this space to um remove myself even if it feels like people are telling me to still do it because recognizing that the system that you're existing in is one that is why you are in that position of power Mm -hmm. is inevitably Mm -hmm. the reason why you are where you are is because of the people around you that doesn't make it right or okay still. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so recognizing that, right. And recognizing that, even if you maybe don't acknowledge yourself as somebody 
who is benefiting from those positions of power. Um, checking yourself and looking at the intersections in your life and recognizing that like, yeah, maybe I did benefit from those systems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think of a, an example that I have. So something we haven't explicitly said in this episode yet, but I think plays a really big part in this and honestly is a way that you can disrupt some of this work is coded language. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and this is absolutely where implicit biases come from. And I honestly think that um, coded language is a tool or weapon. I should not a tool. It's a weapon mm -hmm. that um, honestly, like the, the liberal, like the left falls into often. Um, thinking that they're doing the right thing, but in all actuality are perpetuating negative stereotypes. Um, and so before I kind of give the example that I'm thinking of that happened this week at the school I work at, I want to give kind of an, um, a definition that I found um, from a Vox article about coded language. So coded language describes phrases that are targeted so often at a specific group of people or idea mm -hmm. that eventually the circumstances of a phrase's use are blended into the phrase's meaning. So since thug has been used so often to describe black men in particular, even when they're doing nothing wrong, it now carries a racist connotation. I love, so I loved this definition because I feel like it gives, um, it focuses on how coded language, it's about the impact, not the intent, right? right? And so oftentimes people want to argue about the intent of the words that they use without acknowledging the impact based off of racialized histories yep. um, of uses of that word. Um, so, and the implicit biases that came up, right? And like the implicit, bi absolutely. Right? right. Those implicit biases that manifested in and negative implicit biases, right. As we said, that manifested in the language choice and then consisted in shaping that meaning of that word with time and with use. Absolutely. Like absolutely. So I was just thinking of, um, so our principal, there have been many reasons why he has had to come over and give some like not so fun and flowery announcements for the intercom since the start of the school year. And um, he had at times used the phrase ladies and gentlemen. Mm -hmm. And like, that's something that many, many teachers use. Sure. Many people yeah. use, right? When addressing a large group, you say ladies and gentlemen, um, all, right? And so I, I was not the person that probably like most likely emailed him. I'm assuming somebody reached out to him or emailed him or texted him. But he sent out on, I think, Thursday, a staff-wide email. And he said, listen, these are this is something that I've been saying. We all have to do better mm -hmm. in recognizing that we have many non-binary students in our school and that by using those kinds of words, it mm -hmm. is without intent exclusionary. And so we need yep. to get better about not using ladies and gentlemen and not using gendered language when addressing our students. Um, and so he kind of used himself as an example, right? He admitted his own fault of it, but then also challenged the staff as a whole to say, listen, we've got to do better. Um, and, and it's something that at Lincoln, I know I've had many conversations with many teachers that we're aware of it, but saying it and setting it as the mm -hmm. school-wide norm, yeah. but I'm thinking of the person who reached out to him 
and was brave enough and and to the credit right. of that person was brave enough to reach out to the principal of the school yes. and say hey yeah. you've been saying this you know i i you should really think about it like yeah. if you could yeah. find other words to use and then the principal, our principal, recognizing his power and privilege yes. and positionality, yeah. yep. then emailing out the entire staff and yes. saying, yeah. and and owning it, and then saying we mm-hmm. we got to do better for our students. And it's it's moments like that. It's those types of disruptions that maybe don't feel seismic to yeah. you, but are seismic to the non-binary students in your school right? That you are impacting, but, and also that you're non-binary, like your students that aren't non-binary, but then are existing in a school that recognizes the humanity of every single student mm-hmm. or attempts to recognize the humanity of every single student that is a part of your 1800 student body. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, I, I just think it's, <clears throat> I see the shift at Lincoln. I see the power of that. Like, yeah. and that's a very specific example of working in a school that is very intent on recognizing um, non-binary students, but also like I see the impact on all of the students who they hear they, them pronouns and they hear mm-hmm. and they're existing in a classroom with students that are non-binary and it does not phase them Mm-mm. in the way that it phases the adults that I know. And it's like, yeah. that's powerful. So like, and I mm-hmm. think of those types of disruptions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Though that disrupting coded language is powerful. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love that you're talking about this example, because I think we often need, we have to have courage, right. To speak up mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. And also that it's part of the kind of a call in culture as well, right. That relationship with a person that you're like, Hey, da, 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 da. And then that person being willing to change and then also make like an institution wide. I think um, we talked about this with Ali, just the notion of when you have better language to describe something, or you have new knowledge around something mm-hmm. and you should act accordingly and like do something with that, right. Not just be stagnant. And so we will constantly have evolving shifting language will constantly be learning ways to be better um yeah I was thinking about other ways that and and the thing is this applies also like not just necessarily in education space like any any place of employment you can have these conversations hopefully and or you can do this kind of work right whether you're working in the service industry you're working at a company whatever it may be um these are very practical things I think can be done I was curious yeah uh, oh go ahead Oh, I was just, and, and so I just, to give some examples. So I'm somebody who like as tangible as I can make it right of like non-educational spaced coded language that we hear so often. Um, Like honestly, the use of urban and inner city when discussing um, issues, that's coded language. Um, Black on black crime. We all know that that is coded language. I Um, I like running with, well, I've been really worried about the white on white crime. I don't know about you. Like that white on white crime. Um, so religious freedom, coded language, bossy, sassy, uppity, controlling, emotional. Uh, (laughs) I wonder who I'm taught what that's coded language for. (laughs) Um, yeah. Yeah. But um, I think even like in a, in a given work, in, in, I think even getting more micro in a given workspace, I think there's words like back to your definition that have been accepted as like yeah. the norm of saying something that covers something else. So yes. I'll go back to a school example again, but I, I remember in the, in the, in the U S and in working in public schools, I think the way that folks tend to talk about black children, but specifically black boys and the way let's, you know, let's identify it. White women, white female educators talk about it. And it's got me really thinking, mm-hmm. I mean, I've been thinking about this for a while, but I, 
I think anytime you start to whisper your adjective and then you also follow it up with like some kind of like half like passive aggressive sentence where you're like, was that, was that racist? Like an ish kind of thing. So like people are like, black, yeah. those black, those black those, boys, those right? Like, why are you whispering boys. about the adjective to describe it? Cause you're, oh, you're whispering cause you're about to say something ratchet afterwards. Yes. And you're about to say something that's like rooted in some bias that you have. And, you know, sometimes I do think people are unconscious, like unconsciously doing this, right? They don't really know. But I think a lot of sure. us know and we hear it and we're like, you know, our alarm bells go off right in that moment. And this um, is where I think, and this is where I think that it gets to, I think that liberal left white Americans are just as guilty of using coded language and using language that otherizes that, um, that, that creates this connotation of the other, but also less than mm-hmm. like by treating certain words as bad words when they're not, they're just yeah. not, but by yeah. treating them like they are, you are making them so. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You and are then it becomes othering. a code. It becomes a code for whatever. Right. So like, yeah. um, I'm not going to pretend I haven't heard over here. People say things like, well, those Arab boys. And like, to me, it's just, they just swapped mm-hmm. out the different ethnicity, different race, whatever, but it's the same kind of tone in which you're saying it. And there's still the same follow-up. Don't do their homework are lazy. Don't do this. You know, they're all they care about is blah, blah, blah. Right. And I'm like, Whoa, that's just you really just trying to mask it doesn't matter what country you live in, this kind of language is used, right? And just think about how we've replaced it, whatever our workspace is. And that becomes then the norm. So when everyone says it, everyone knows. (laughs) But Hope, isn't that just cultural competency? Isn't that just acknowledging the the cultures? Like, isn't that just acknowledging the cultures in which our students- throw this bell through the window. But wait, isn't that just, that's just cultural competency. (laughs) Where's my water? I'm gonna throw it at you. (laughs) Like, I can't even respond That's to that. That's just culturally responsive <laughs> teaching, Hope. Yes. Understanding um, the racial paradigm that someone comes from and what they're bringing definitely is. But what it sounds like that's different, it sounds like, hey, I noticed that Arab cultures are very family-oriented. And it's, it's talking about mm-hmm. it not from a deficit model, right? It's talking about it from positive. I noticed that they're very mm-hmm. family-oriented. And one of the things that happens is that sometimes students might be late because they're taking care of a younger brother and sister. And it's important to drop their sibling off at mm-hmm. school before they come to school as a high school student, right? Total different framing, right? Oh, this, this, think- these kids don't turn in their homework. Oh, this student is really concerned about being, um, you know, speaking English and writing in a particular language that's not their first language mm-hmm. and the language of their high literacy. And so therefore it's taking them longer, which means that they're more nervous about it. And also that is impeding them turning the assignment in on a given time, right? Yeah. Totally different ways of looking at the same So situation. I think of a very powerful moment at the end of the last school year um, that was powerful for our students as well. And I watched it make many of our students emotional is I think that Many well-intentioned educators spoke about the impact of the pandemic and the impact of virtual learning on um, students living in low-income households, students living in um, underserved communities, um, and, and like the impact on BIPOC students of, right, like that are of the pandemic. 
And it was, oh, like the reason why they couldn't do well is the lack of access to technology. The reason why they struggled to stay engaged was this, this, and this. And it was always the focus on their inability to perform academically, right? And that was the focus. And it wasn't a negative. It was on trying to understand the reasons between, the reasons behind it, right? And but at the end of the day, the conversation was they're not doing well. They're yeah, not doing well. They're failing. Yes. They're struggling. They're yes. not doing well. They're not, they're not academically performing. Yeah. That's what the message is. Like your shit, your shit, your shit. Like your mm-hmm. test scores are shit. Your grades are shit. Like, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Go hard. It's fine. That's my bad. Um, I feel like I'm always the one that like, we have to be like, are we bleeping that? Um, no, it's fine. So it's true though. That's what, but, that's what, right. And that's, do. that's what you're saying. I was at our senior night. And once again, I, our principal got up and he spoke to our seniors at this event and he gave the speech. And at one point he said, and I recognize that many of you had to sacrifice being a good student in order to be a great member of your family. Yeah. The last year. When I tell you the tears of the students, the moment he said that, I would say half of my ASB students teared up or and or cried when he said that. Mm-hmm. I watched across the room and it was this acknowledgement that, oh, I didn't, I could have been, like I could have academically achieved at the same level despite the barriers of COVID. Because of the systems that we existed in, it yes. was that I was a great family member this year. And that was more important. I had to prioritize being a great member of my family mm-hmm. over the last year. Mm-hmm. And that shift is powerful because mm-hmm. it is not a deficit shift. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. an acknowledgement mm-hmm. of the p- great power of... And like, to be clear, the unfair power, right? That is still part of a system, like a racist system, a white supremacist system, but also like, it's not deficit. It's not a deficit mindset. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. it's, I don't, it was a, it was a powerful shift for me to hear. And, and I would, I would imagine an even more powerful shift for our students to hear. Yeah. Well, it reminds me like what your example is like the flip side of my previous example, which as I've quoted before, George Bush, you know, the soft bigotry of low expectations. Right. Mm -hmm. And the first one that we just talked about is that bigotry that comes in low expectations, excuse making, et cetera, et cetera. The second one is an acknowledgement of the systems that are at play and a recognition of like the power and the work that people are doing. And I think that's it. And maybe it's hard. I think, I think it is hard. I'm not gonna say maybe it's hard. I think it is hard sometimes to know the difference. And part of us, you know, mm-hmm. like trying our best is to sort through that, to sort through the differences yeah. and to try to figure out when we're complicit in that, right. When we're saying yeah. those things ourselves and catching ourselves to then say other stuff. Um, I recently, so I'm thinking about this I, in the last little bit of time here, I would love to talk a little bit more about what do you think the implications are? We've talked a bit about students, but what do you think the implications are on creating spaces for our colleagues? And particularly if we want to increase and create spaces where colleagues of color feel 
like they can thrive and are part of the community mm. and we're working side by side alongside together. What do you think are the implications for creating those spaces that that's related to this idea mm-hmm. of bigotry or coded language or even thinking about positionality? Any thoughts on that? I think so. And I'm not sure if this is going to get at what the question that you're actually answering, but I came across um, in my prep for this episode, um, two educators that started a website called Class Trouble, and they have a guide to coded language and education, volume one and two. And their whole thing, one of the quotes is, academia is still full of liberals who too often trade accurately naming oppression for institutional clout. Hmm. And the the words encoded language that they talk about are, are words that very like liberal educators still use, like inner city, at-risk youth, grit, resiliency, yep. that achievement gap. Yep. Anyways, um, I can imagine it is oftentimes the educational system provides space for educators of color to lead, to mm. challenge, or not even challenge, to lead, or maybe challenge, but on the white system's terms. And the moment that white educators begin to feel uncomfortable, and this is like those woke white liberal educators begin to feel challenged or uncomfortable, that is when the the pushback comes. Well, we're not, that's like, I don't know about that. And I'm not sure that that's accurate. And, um, And like, it's not your place to, to challenge nor question is your place to try and understand. Um, like one of also another quote, but we think it is important to push back against the palatable renaming of our oppression. Mm -hmm. And so it's creating space for, um, educators of color to be like the experts and trusted and paying them for their expertise. Yeah. And, um, and believing them and, and not putting the burden of proof on mm-hmm. to people of color to dismantle the white system, right? I think oftentimes it's like, well, sure, we're willing to change, but like you really have to show why. The burden of proof is on you to show us why we should change and why this is problematic and why yeah. this is wrong. Yep, yep. And like just... F that all the way off of like putting the burden of proof on people of color in these systems to have to like prove to you as a white person or prove to this white system that like this is problematic. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Not sure if that was the question that you were. No, no, no. I think that's a good example. (laughs) I think that is a good example. Right. So I kind of almost simplistically say stating like believe people of color yes (laughs) like you can even start as simply as that like believe the stories and the experiences and the expertise um and and acknowledge acknowledge that and I think sometimes it's even just acknowledging that it's weird and it's awkward or that you don't know how to acknowledge these things or you don't Mm -hmm. know how to talk about it in a different way um I was talking to a a new hire that we have um who's a black woman and I was talking a little bit about like I'm just so glad you're on the team and I was you know I was like I'm so glad you're on the team because like your expertise da 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 you're a black woman da 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 and then I realized like in the whatever order I had said I I also don't know this person very well yet and so I was like so to be clear I'm not saying 
that I'm glad like we hired you because you're black. Like you're an expert in these yes. areas as well. Like, yeah. And it's a bonus because our kids need to see, you know, black women in power, like in positions of power, like on the daily basis in positions yes. of expertise, content area, you know, whatever, whatever. Yes. Uh, and so like, I was kind of, I felt like as I was talking, I was like, am I stepping in the business? I'm like, am I creating a problem? And then like stepping in my own business at right. that moment. But I also feel yes. like sometimes you just have to do that because I also wanted, I also want a person to know, like, I think about these things, things, and I don't do it necessarily. Like, I, I just want to know, yeah. I think about these things and these elements that are at play in, in the work that we're doing and we're, yes. we're a team together. Like we work together. And so I also yeah. want her to feel like at some point, if, you know, she wants an ally for some, some reason that like she mm-hmm. can come to me around those kind of things, but also that I'm, I'm thinking about that. I mean, there are lots, and I, and that's just one tiny example, but there's, I think lots of times where we can, we can, as white folks in particular, you can name that awkwardness that maybe that person of color who's working with you isn't, is unsure about naming. Like they know it's there. Let's not pretend that I was they just don't. About to, um, I was just about to say that. They know. They know. But it's, you it's, naming it can sometimes yes. like be, what stigmatize it, I guess. And also because of your positionality, your perceived positionality in the space, right? That exactly what you just said is that it does not take you like being like this, like over the top ally where you're going and like, you're talking like, no, it is creating a space. It's creating a work environment where you are leading by your actions of just saying it and naming it and acknowledging Mm -hmm. it that like, Mm -hmm. you're talking about it. You're saying it, um, you're naming your whiteness, you're naming your privilege, you're naming the power of that. It creates an opportunity in a space that is safe because all of a sudden you're now in a space where you recognize like, oh, this system yeah. is is talking about it on the yeah. surface because it's not news to anybody no. of no. color, y'all. Like yeah. this is yeah. not news or revolutionary yeah. to any person of color. Yeah. It's just, it might just be new and revolutionary to you. And if it is like, that's some, that's some shit to unpack for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, there you go. Yeah. Well, and I'll like, say too, like, I think also white folks can set up your relationships with your colleagues of color. Like it doesn't matter if you're in school or wherever you're at, but set it up in such a way or cultivate it in such a way that I also hope you can be honest about asking as well, like what kind of support may be needed in a given situation. Right. So if you can, like, I'm just thinking about, you know, I often go to my colleagues and say, do you, is this a situation where I should speak up because of my Mm -hmm. positionality or do I need to just sit down and like, shut the shut hell up, up. You know? <laughs> like, like, I don't know. And so I just ask. And then yep. sometimes the answer is speak up. Sometimes it's like, shut up. And sometimes it's just sit down. Don't worry about it. Right. And I'm like, okay. okay. But I think we have to, I think part of this work is like having to, to just do that. And I think I've, I've given up like yeah. my own, I mean, I still have plenty of pride, but I think I've kind of given up like this, like this embarrassment part because I'm just like, it is what it is. It's gonna, if it's awkward, it's awkward. And then, but what's, what's, it's for the better in the end for like the community that we're cultivating or like our students or fighting white supremacy or whatever. In the end, we have to be humble about it and just be like, yeah, I'm going to mess up. And then also like, keep going. Yep. And I think that I, I can think of a specific situation that happened, um, at the beginning of the school year, because as your staff, begins to have these conversations, it's inevitable that there are going to be either coded language, there are going to be micro, like microaggressive language, like yeah. situations that happen in those conversations, checking in on like, obviously cultivate relationships first, but then you can go check in on, um, the people of color and mm-hmm. say, listen, what, how can I support? Do you, do I need to use, or like, you know what I mean? And then like, um, which happened and then 
the position of power, the person who had more years of experience in the school went and talked to people in power, right? The yeah. leadership. Yeah. Um, but well, I, I think you I'm can hearing- also say, don't reply back to me. Like, I think when you can check in with people, you can also be like, you don't need to respond, yeah. but if you, you don't want need to respond, respond, like I'm just, just let, just let you know. I just I'm, want I'm you here. to know. I heard it. I heard it. I, hear it. I see. It. I saw it. It yeah. was unacceptable. Um, I'm willing to do whatever it is that you need me to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I think what I'm hearing is the biggest thing that you need to do in this process is one, check in with yourself and your positionality mm-hmm. and then two, create and cultivate spaces that allow people of color to, um, feel seen right and like create spaces where it's acknowledged and then like disrupt moments where you see it mm-hmm. as best to your ability that's a perfect recap and i think honestly leads to our final segment do your fudging homework interchangeable right, ladies and so i think for me today I really do. There are three specific articles that I found in the research for this episode that I really, I like deeply believe that you should go read. They were powerful. Um, And so we're going to, I'm going to link those three articles. I just, I've been doing this work for quite a while and I still walked away from all of these articles with things to think about and process and reflect on. Yep. Yeah. And I think my homework will just be, um, you know, folks do a little bit of inventory in your life. Like think about where you tend to whisper or you follow up with kind of a microaggression. That's a little bit crappy as well. Um, think about where your colleagues do that in whatever given workspace and then have an honest conversation with yourself and like maybe set a goal, like do this less this week. Right. Or speak up when someone says something and just say, Hey, I'm, I'm not comfortable with us talking about this group of people in a given way or like this particular person here. Um, I think just take some baby steps if if you need to take the baby steps, but just continue to move forward. So that's my challenge for, for listeners to look around at their lives and then try to do something different this week. Awesome. Thank you all for listening as always. Bye. Bye. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. <laughs> Doug, do not use this, this clip right now. You can't. You legitimately. I just, re- I just realized it's like full on recording. The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer. Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.